Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Friday wrapped another week in the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. The committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the second in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. And a busy one at that. On the Hill, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch, a lifelong foreign service officer, testified publicly in front of lawmakers. Notably, in that testimony, Yovanovitch said when she read the transcript of Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, she felt threatened. And yet, Yovanovitch wasn't the only witness lawmakers would hear from Friday. A closed-door testimony with State Department official David Holmes was scheduled for the afternoon. And still, amidst moments from the public hearings, other impeachment-related news continue to break throughout the week. So we'll cover the key moments from Yovanovitch's Friday testimony, and we'll catch you up on what else you may have missed in the first week of this public inquiry phase. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. I caught up with The Post's national security reporter, Matt Zapatosky, and I wanted to start with unpacking Friday's hearing with Yovanovitch. I asked him to refresh me on the circumstances that led to her departure. It's a little murky and complicated. These rumors start to swirl about her, gosh, starting back in like April of 2018 or even before then. It seems like Ukrainian forces that don't really like her, that are worried about her kind of policing corruption in their country, want her out. And they're able in a roundabout way to get in President Trump's ear about it. Some through Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, some through other U.S. politicians like Representative Pete Sessions from Texas. So there's kind of this murky campaign to smear her reputation and suggest she's disloyal to Trump. So then the president hears this, takes this up, and eventually uh, this year she's forced out. It's, again, a murky thing. She's just kind of recalled from there. And it doesn't make sense for her to be the top diplomat in Ukraine when she doesn't have the president's support. But that's kind of the sequence. These Ukrainian forces are able to kind of get their message in front of President Trump. And then she's removed essentially because of that. So then fast forward to Friday, Yovanovitch testifies in front of the House committee about both her departure from Ukraine and her time when she was serving there. I want to talk about a few key moments. So first, in her opening statement, essentially she says that her removal may help undermine U.S. foreign policy in other instances. Our Ukraine policy has been thrown into disarray and shady interests the world, the world over have learned how little it takes to remove an American ambassador who does not give them what they want. After these events, what foreign ish, official, corrupt or not, could be blamed for wondering whether the U.S. ambassador represents the president's views? So why is it significant here that a lifelong career diplomat is testifying under oath that 
State Department work was made more difficult by the circumstances of her removal. Well, a couple of points on that. That one has been the theme of this week, right? You had have had other ambassadors coming forward. And it seems like Democrats in this impeachment inquiry are kind of trying to set the stage that the result of President Trump's actions trying to get these investigations that would help him politically actually hurt U.S. foreign policy. So this isn't like he's doing this thing and it has no consequence because he doesn't actually get the investigation. Just the act of him doing this hurts foreign policy. And she's kind of a prime example of that where these Ukrainian forces, potentially corrupt forces, don't like her and they're able to get in the president's ear and force her out. And the point she is making is like – other countries can see this and they now have a playbook of what to do. They know how to kind of get in the president's ear and shape U.S. foreign policy so it's in their best interest, but it might not be in the best interest of the U.S. So she's kind of positing herself as a model, a bad model for like what can happen if, if this were to happen in, in other countries. So that was one of the big takeaways from her opening statements. And then the hearing moved to a questioning phase by the lawyer for the Democrats, Daniel Goldman. Yovanovitch and Goldman had this meaningful exchange about the details in the rough transcript of the July 25th Trump-Zelensky Trump call at the center of this. Let's listen to that. I didn't know what to think, um, but I was very concerned. What were you concerned about? She's going to go through some things. It didn't sound good sounded like a threat. Did you feel threatened? I did. How so? I, I didn't know exactly. It's not, you know, a very precise phrase, but I think um, it, it, it didn't feel like I was... Uh, I really don't know how, how to answer the question any further except to say that uh, it kind of felt like a vague threat. And so I wondered what that meant. It concerned me. For clarification, Yovanovitch read the transcript of the call after she'd already left her post in Ukraine, right? Yes. Okay. So it was clearly upsetting to her, as she made clear from her testimony. Is it significant to the inquiry that she specifically used the word threat, that she felt threatened by the president? Well, yeah. And I think if you couple that with the president's tweet about her today, it's all kind of part of what Democrats see as a package, which is the president trying to obstruct the investigation and potentially intimidate witnesses. And, and that's sort of what she's speaking to when she talks about her dismay upon reading this transcript. You couple that with the president's tweet today, just kind of generally calling her out. Democrats are saying, look, this amounts to witness intimidation. And it's possible that that could become an actual article if they ever draft articles of impeachment. So that's kind of why it's significant, even though she's not sort of a participant on this call, just hearing her reaction to this call is pretty significant. As the testimony is happening, as Ivanovich is testifying, President Trump is tweeting attacks on her, about her. In in a move that seemed really unprecedented to me from where I sat, Schiff actually reads those tweets to Yovanovitch as she's facing the panel. Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Well, I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously. 
it seems pretty clear that Chairman Schiff was accusing the president here of witness intimidation. And in fact, he repeated that point later saying, quote, we saw today witness intimidation in real time by the president of the United States. Is that a new development in the in the in this inquiry, Dems making the witness intimidation argument? Have we seen this before? Definitely obstruction has been a part of their case, but we've more seen that in the context of the president declining to allow witnesses to testify. So not so much intimidating witnesses who have testified, but actually preventing people from coming up to the Hill and sharing their story. So obstruction seems to have been a long part of this, but the specific witness intimidation charge is somewhat new and particularly that it it's kind of playing out in real time before our eyes, if that makes sense. This isn't like the president had his lawyers send really menacing letters to her lawyers. This is like she's on Capitol Hill, she's talking to lawmakers, and the president is tweeting about her. Now, I'm sure his defenders would say, we didn't specifically threaten any consequences to her. He just kind of demeaned her. But this undeniably was an attack on her. And Democrats, who are going to be the ones drawing up articles of impeachment if they get to that stage, did see it as witness intimidation. So, you know, this isn't a court, right? They are the ones who kind of get to decide. The Senate ultimately will decide if if that if removal is warranted. But so that's why it's important that they're using terms like witness intimidation. Does it foreshadow what we might see included in drafted articles of impeachment? I think it does. And I think if you couple this with other comments that Democrats have made recently, and I'm thinking particularly of Nancy Pelosi talking about the president having committed bribery and there being evidence of bribery, it seems like Democrats are trying to use legal language. And and I think they're trying to do that because they're foreshadowing what they intend to write in articles of impeachment. So right now, it feels to me like we're kind of in a fact-gathering stage. We're getting witnesses to events to describe what happened. And Democrats are almost playing the role of prosecutor here. They're deciding what charges to draw. But because this actually isn't a courtroom, it's an impeachment process, they kind of just have to decide what those are. But they're looking to the law and they're using legal terms like witness intimidation and bribery. And I do think that foreshadows what we might see in articles of impeachment that they eventually draw up, almost like an indictment in a court process. And it's worth noting that Trump actually responded to this later in the day at a news conference when he was asked by a reporter if he was trying to intimidate Yovanovitch. Sir, with your freedom, were you trying to intimidate uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch? I just want to have a total, I want freedom of speech. That's a political process. The Republicans have been treated very badly. And I watched a little bit of it today. I wasn't able to yesterday because we had the president of Turkey here and I wasn't able to watch much. I watched some of it this morning. I thought it was a disgrace. When we have great Republican representatives, people elected by the people, and they're not allowed to even ask a question, they're not allowed to make a statement, we're not allowed to have witnesses, we're not allowed to have legal counsel, White House counsel, it's a disgrace and it's an embarrassment to our nation. And your words can be intimidated. Yes, go ahead, please. Sir, do you believe your quiet, words quiet, can be intimidated? Quiet, quiet, quiet. Sir, do you believe please. your tweets and words can be intimidating? I don't think so at all. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 
All right. One final clip from the hearings that I want to focus on. A Republican strategy seems to be to paint Yovanovitch as this non-essential person to the inquiry. Let's listen to an exchange between Devin Nunes, the Republican ranking member, and and Yovanovitch. I'm not exactly sure uh, what the ambassador is doing here today. Uh, This is the House Intelligence Committee that's now turned into the House Impeachment Committee. Uh, This seems more appropriate uh, for the Subcommittee on Human Resources at the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee. Uh, If there's issues with with employment, disagreements with the administration, it would seem like this would be a more appropriate setting uh, instead of an impeachment hearing where uh, the ambassador is not uh, a material fact witness uh, to anything, any of the accusations that are being hurled uh, at the president for this impeachment inquiry. How is it that Democrats see Ivanovich as an important witness and Republicans don't and try to make that point repeatedly? It feels to me like Republicans want to focus like a laser on this call, which Ivanovich didn't sort of listen into live. And they want to suggest that what happened on the call, well, I guess they don't really have a consistent line, but they want to suggest at various points what happened on the call wasn't bad at all, or maybe it was bad, but it's not impeachable. And they think this whole line of inquiry into effect on foreign policy is irrelevant. You know, So they want to say, not just Yovanovitch, but the two witnesses who testified earlier, look, they didn't have any direct interaction with President Trump. They're just getting secondhand information. The president is allowed to set his foreign policy in Ukraine. Who cares what these career bureaucrats or longtime bureaucrats think? That's kind of their line of attack. And that's what Devin Nunes is getting at there. He's saying, well, why does this matter to if there's like a corrupt quid pro quo? But I think Democrats would say, look, we haven't said that the impeachment inquiry is focused narrowly on that charge. Like, was there bribery here, right? They're investigating all of the context, and, and this to them is important context. Even though Marie, if they want to, if Republicans want to focus on the call, Marie Ivanovich's name is right there in the rough transcript. Yes, she is mentioned in the transcript. She clearly her reaction to the call came up today, but I think they would say like she is not sort of an essential part of that call, nor is she a witness to that call, nor can she really describe the most negative aspects of that call, like the quid pro quo feel to it. Some general questions about the hearing overall. What did we learn today from Yovanovitch's testimony beyond what we had already learned from her closed-door testimony and transcript? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, I felt like we we learned more pointedly what her reaction was to seeing her name mentioned on the call and seeing the president's attitude towards her. Right. It's different to have read that in a transcript versus see the person actually having emotion. Yeah. Like when you read her words, and I'm sure a lot of people don't read her words, you know, just seeing all of this on TV, it's it's new to people for the first time. But also when you're talking about someone trashing you and how that made you feel, reading it is a lot different than seeing it. So Democrats exposing that to the American public is pretty significant to me. Even if, if she said those things before, even if it's maybe fairly obvious that the president says he's lost confidence in you or doesn't believe in you and that it's going to be unpleasant, right? But seeing her say that I thought was, was one of the more interesting parts of the hearing today. All right. Then after a week of the first public hearings in this impeachment inquiry, what have we learned about what 
we might get out of these hearings, what the public might get out of them, what lawmakers might get out of them? I think we learned that they're going to be somewhat dry. You're talking about diplomats, you know, people who talk in very measured ways. And it also seems to me these diplomats don't want to sort of make the Democrats charges for them. They just want to share facts. So I think that's a preview of of what next week will probably bring. We will see diplomats testifying in a fact-based way. I think number two, we're seeing the Democrats try to paint a broad picture. And they're starting with, look, the president's actions actually impacted foreign policy. We haven't yet gotten to any kind of witnesses who had direct contact with Trump. That's in part because President Trump has blocked most of the people who have had direct contact with him from testifying. I think we'll get at least one next week with Gordon Sondland. But we did get people with some secondhand knowledge, and it feels to me like Democrats are kind of trying to you know, draw a big circle and then zero in. So for example, earlier this week, you had a witness testifying about their staffer who overheard this call where President Trump is purportedly, again, pressing for investigations. Today, behind closed doors, they're actually hearing from that staff, or eventually maybe we hear from that publicly. So this is like any investigation, right? You start at the outside, you get tips, then you get to more direct people. And that seems to be the way that Democrats are, are building this thing. As you say, Yovanovitch isn't the only person testifying Friday. She's the one public testimony, but David Holmes, a State Department official, is testifying behind closed doors Friday afternoon. We can't yet know exactly what goes on behind closed doors. We might get the transcript later But why are House investigators talking to this particular State Department official? Well, a different witness, Bill Taylor, brought up that this person overheard a phone call between Gordon Sondland, who's another diplomat, and Mr. Holmes on this call. And this is, again, sort of a third-hand description, you know, the this is Bill Taylor saying what he was told that Holmes overheard. But Holmes purportedly overheard President Trump and Sondland talking about the investigations Trump wanted. And this conversation occurred a day after the infamous July 25th phone call where President Trump presses President Zelensky for these investigations. And it's kind of just another important piece that shows how focused the president is on this. That, And it also sort of shows that he's not just kind of bringing up random things that he doesn't really care about. He's focused like a laser on this. He has the call with President Zelensky and then he follows up with his man on the ground at that point in Ukraine to see what the status of those is. You know, the White House has said there's no explicit quid pro quo on the July 25th call, and that is technically true. But President Trump following up with uh, Sondland is more evidence that maybe there there was some there was something there. Another important aspect that Holmes apparently overhears, or not even overhears in this instance, he talks with Sondland and he claims that Sondland says to him, "Well, President Trump cares more about investigating the Bidens than he does Ukraine." And that's significant, again, to this foreign policy piece of of, of things. It's like President Trump doesn't actually care about U.S. foreign policy. He cares about an investigation that will help him politically. So most of what you've said we learned from Taylor's testimony earlier this week. What do lawmakers hope to gain directly from Holmes that they couldn't, that they don't already know from Taylor? Well, A, the firsthand account. I mean, what we have is just such a snippet. This is like what Taylor's staffer told him. Well, Obviously, you want to talk to the guy who actually overheard this, who actually talked to Sondland. There's so many more details I would want to know, like 
specifically what investigations did he overhear that? Like, did he overhear any conditions uh, attached to those investigations? You know, was it just like President Trump saying, hey, what's the deal with those investigations? Or did he hear talk about a White House meeting or foreign aid? I mean, there's so many questions from the person who was actually there that Taylor really wouldn't be able to answer. It'll also be interesting, too, because it will set the stage for Sondland next week. Sondland didn't reveal this to lawmakers when he was there for um, closed-door testimony. So it'll be interesting to see what Holmes says and then how that compares to what Sondland says next week. And Sondland has changed his testimony before. so Right. And this is sort of raising more credibility questions for Sondland. We'll see kind of how he addresses it. All right. Outside of the hearings, there have also been a few other impeachment-related developments this week. I want to talk through just a few of those. The White House released a rough transcript of an April call in which President Trump congratulated Ukraine's Zelensky on his election win. Why did the White House release this rough transcript? Well, (laughs) I mean, my thought is they released it probably because it wasn't anything bad. It was just sort of innocuous. And they're trying to present this narrative that both calls were just totally innocuous. But this call was just not the same as the July call. And we already knew it was innocuous because we've seen closed door testimony from a person who listened to it who said, yeah, it was just a regular congratulatory phone call. I would say, though, what it did show was from an early point, President Zelensky really wanted a White House meeting. And so when you think about this later July call and the topic of a White House meeting is broached, President Trump knows how much Zelensky wants it. And then he's asking for these investigations. This call in isolation, it's just a pretty straight up congratulations on your election victory. Would love to see at the White House sometime. And perhaps one of the only phone calls between two leaders that mentions the Miss Universe pageant. Yeah, that was a really interesting (laughs) uh, moment where President Trump, I guess, to make nice with his his Ukrainian counterparts says, well, yeah, uh, I love people from Ukraine. We always had great people from Ukraine in the Miss Universe pageant. Last development this week that I want to talk about as we consider how this process continues, the Washington Post reported that senators are privately discussing potential plans to hold a lengthy impeachment trial beginning in January assuming that the House votes on impeachment, on articles of impeachment. What problem would a long trial beginning in January present for the 2020 Democratic primary race? Well, it would present a challenge for the Democratic senators who are in that race because they at that time would want to be out campaigning. Now, that doesn't affect everybody, right? Not everybody is a Democratic senator. It might be a boon for Pete Buttigieg, for example. But for Senator Harris, Senator Sanders, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Warren, Senator Booker, Senator Bennett, all of these people are going to have a tough a tough choice between do I go out and campaign and try to help my chances at becoming president or do I stay here for the very serious and solemn duty of deciding whether to remove the president? Now, I think a few, I know at least Warren has said she's going to stay and I imagine there would be immense pressure to stay, but it's a little bit of a wrinkle, right? And Republicans um, have to decide if that would be strategically beneficial to them. 
Is there an inherent conflict then for some Republicans who've in the past suggested that a swift impeachment trial would ultimately be the best for the president? That's a great question. And and there is a conflict, right? Because they have to decide, do we drag this out? Do we sort of keep the distraction going, keep President Trump pretty upset? He seems pretty upset even in just this non-removal process so far. Do we keep that going? How does that play in the election, you know, to have this deep, deep into the campaign, to have the country focused on whether or not President Trump would be removed? Or do you try to keep these senators off the campaign trail? Like, what's the calculus there? And it's a tough spot. And I think probably not all Republicans agree on what's the right thing to do. And especially those that have said, look, we want to wrap this quickly. Dragging it out for weeks and weeks and weeks would not be wrapping it quickly. All right. Well, if the House votes in favor of impeachment, I suppose we will find out which approach the Senate takes. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That? Post Reports and the Daily 202's Big Idea. Updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the glamorous Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 